Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with Derek Davison. And there's a lot of news this week, so why don't we just get into it? So, Derek, why don't we start with the U.S. General Assembly? Uh, yes. Uh, actually, the first bit of news should be uh, apologies if uh, my voice sounds crappy. I feel like I'm coming down with something, so just FYI. Uh, well, you used up yes, all your PTO, yeah. so don't forget that. I know. I know. That's why I'm here. So, I mean, I'm yeah, not, I'm not trying to shark. Not trying to shark anything. It is uh, UN General Assembly week uh, this week. It happens every year, at least when there's not COVID. This is the week when all the world leaders get together and say speeches at each other while nobody really pays attention to them. It's a kind of pointless exercise, but it's also one of the least harmful things I think a lot of these people do all year. So uh, I'm in favor of it. And the quality, the, the, the amount of really horrible news does seem to diminish somewhat uh, during this week every year, at least anecdotally, I've noticed that. Uh, so this week, yeah, they've been, you know, giving speeches, having meetings. Uh, Antonio Guterres started the festivities on Monday, warning about the world being in great peril, which certainly I think is hard to argue with. Uh, probably that's a message you could deliver every year. Uh, so far, uh, and again, I don't think there's much reason to pay attention to a lot of this stuff, but so far I think the most, at least memorable speech, or the one that seemed to have gotten the most attention came from Gustavo Petro, the, the president of Colombia, uh, who made a uh, fairly impassioned speech on Tuesday, uh, making the case for ending the war on drugs. Uh, he compared cocaine to coal or oil, and oil, and noted that we've decided that one is bad and, and the other is good, even though the one we've decided is good could destroy human civilization through climate change and the other one. Uh, yeah, it's not great, but it's probably not quite that bad. Uh, so it was, it was a good speech. It was a powerful speech. I don't think it's actually going to matter. Uh, I don't think there's going to be an end to the war on drugs because there's too many, too much in the U S that's invested in it, but, uh, still a, still a speech you might want to check out. Other than that, uh, you know, there've been, a lot of speeches about the war in Ukraine that I think are all sort of interchangeable. You can pretty much guess what everybody had to say. And, uh, you know, again, I, I, not much to say other than that. Uh, I would urge these people to just stay in the UN building for, like, try a whole year and just give speeches and see how that goes. I think the rest of us would be, uh, would be in much better shape, but that's just my opinion. So why don't we do an update on what's going on in uh, Ethiopia and the war there? Yes. So um, this is brief because there's not a lot of detail to go on. But on Tuesday, the spokesperson for the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the, the, which is uh, still waging war against the Ethiopian government, uh, Gedachu Reda, uh, declared uh, on Twitter that the Eritrean military had launched a full-scale offensive uh, in the northern uh, part of Ethiopia's Tigray region. Uh, again, it's unclear how intensive this is, but his statement was corroborated by a couple of things. One, earlier in the week, uh, I believe over the weekend, the Canadian government said it had seen evidence of a fairly large uh, military mobilization effort in Eritrea, which apparently presaged this offensive. Uh, the U.S. envoy for the Horn of Africa, Mike Hammer, 
uh, said that uh, the U.S. government was aware of Eritrean soldiers entering the Tigray region. Uh, so this does seem to be something that's going on. Again, getting details out of here and you know trying to figure out exactly uh, where things stand is difficult. But it the upshot, I would say, is the war here is getting worse, not better. The TPLF offered last week, I believe, to agree to pretty much all of the uh, Ethiopian government's demands vis-a-vis a peace process. They agreed to an uh, African Union-led peace process rather than the alternative that they were looking for. Uh, and the response has been airstrikes. It's been this uh, apparent escalation by the Eritrean military. Ethiopian federal forces and, and forces from the Amhara region also maybe uh, attacking from the south, trying to kind of catch the TPLF in between the two. Uh, so it's been nothing but escalation uh, in the last uh, several days, it seems like uh, not a great sign. But again, I don't, uh, I don't know exactly where things stand. So let's move over to Iran and, and what's going on there with a lot of um, protests over the hijab. Uh, and actually, listeners, we plan to have a special on this issue coming out in the next few days uh, so for subscribers. So if you're interested, uh, please consider signing up. But Derek, what's been going on? Uh, so uh, there's a uh, 22-year-old Iranian Kurdish woman, Masa Amini, uh, was arrested at some point, I believe, last week. Uh, by Iranian morality police or religious police uh, over some sort of violation with her hijab. Initially, I'd seen it reported that she wasn't wearing one at all. Now I've seen claims that she was wearing it, but it was maybe a little bit askew. I mean, the rules about these things are such that if the police want to pick you up, they can probably find a reason to do it. Uh, So they arrested her, and at some point she fell into a coma while in police custody and subsequently died. There's a lot, there's been a lot of rumors, claims that she was beaten into a coma by police. Uh, Iranian authorities released a very grainy uh, kind of a context-free video uh, of Amini in a police station suddenly collapsing, which doesn't mean that she hadn't been uh, beaten previously. So, uh, but that's been their defense is to say, look, she just collapsed. It was natural causes. She died of like a heart attack or something. There's no medical history there that would would support that, but that's been their claim. Her death caught fire on social media uh, in Iran. It led to protests. It's been, I think, six straight days at this point of protests uh, that started predominantly in Iran's Kurdistan province, but they've spread uh, really to almost, well, throughout the country. I don't, I, I, I wouldn't say uh, every city, but 50, the, the last count I saw was like 50 towns and cities uh, in Iran or across Iran have seen protests over this incident. Um, they've gotten fairly large. It's difficult to parse how big these protests are because on the one hand you have difficulty getting confirmed, verified news out of Iran given the media environment there. And on the other hand, U.S. media tends to seize on any outbreak of protests to, you know, kind of drive a narrative that the Islamic Republic is uh, collapsing. So uh, I don't know exactly how large these protests have been, but they do seem fairly substantial. Several people have been killed. Uh, The latest uh, numbers I've seen just uh, today, Thursday, as we're recording this, uh, state TV, Iranian state TV has acknowledged 17 people killed uh, in six days of protests or six straight days of protests. Uh, there's an Iranian NGO that's based in Oslo uh, called the, called Iran Human Rights that's claiming 31 people have been killed. Uh, again, 
these are dueling claims. The NGO claims they've all been killed by police. The authorities are, um, you know, claiming otherwise. They're suggesting some of these deaths may be suspicious, or that some of them have uh, may have been security forces. So they're they're trying to downplay a little bit. Uh, the Iranian government has restricted public access to social media, including Instagram and WhatsApp, were the two that I, I saw most prominently mentioned. So something fairly substantial going on here. I don't think it's uh, you know, going to topple the Islamic Republic, but uh, clearly people are angry over this death. And of course, these are always this is all this type of thing is always sort of the the culmination, or it's a, a, a sort of final straw type of a thing where this woman's death is, I think, you know, been projected uh, as sort of uh, the trigger. But but people have a lot of grievances with the Iranian state that they're uh, trying to exercise it right now. So we'll uh, hopefully be able to talk a little bit more about that in the next few days. Derek, why don't we stay with protests and uh, tell us what's going on in Haiti. So uh, there have been major protests uh, last week and into uh, the beginning of this week over the uh, rise in fuel prices. Uh, Prime Minister, Haitian Prime Minister uh, slash interim president Ariel Henry uh, announced early last week that he was uh, basically phasing out fuel subsidies because the Haitian government can't afford it. Prices are spiking. People, again, you know, this is sort of the culmination of a long string of frustrations over a bad economy, over corruption, over political uh, incompetence and, and malfeasance. The New York Times reported over the weekend, I think Friday, and then over the weekend uh, about the conditions in Port-au-Prince. Protesters have been setting up barricades. They've been blocking roads. They've been, you know, kind of setting fire to uh, tires, which are all sort of standard protest uh, tactics. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I don't have an answer here what's going to happen next, but, um, you, you know, clearly, I think Haiti's political situation cannot continue like this. Henri does not seem to have very much legitimacy with the public. Uh, he came into office just days really, or was even, was nominated by uh, Jovenel Moise just, I think, a few days before Moise was uh, assassinated last year. Uh, it's been a, uh, you know, kind of struggle to get any kind of traction in terms of holding an election to actually come up with a legitimate replacement for Moise uh, or to to vote on a parliament a new parliament even people are frustrated uh, obviously they've got years of frustration economically and, and politically built up and it's a it's a powder keg um, so anything like this is is um, you know a risk to to really create something uh, quite severe has the U.S. responded or has the U.S. indicated it will do anything? I haven't seen a response from the U.S. Um, the Biden administration's uh, sort of been supporting Henri uh, through this, uh, even, even as the investigation into the Moise assassination has uncovered some tantalizing indications that Henri may have been involved in that incident. The U.S. has not really wavered much in backing Henri. Uh, again, despite a, a relative lack of, of certainly uh, legal legitimacy and clearly, you know, in terms of the eyes of the, the Haitian public, uh, you know, he's, he's not 
they don't seem to be particularly satisfied with him remaining as the chief executive uh, in, in the way that he has. So I haven't seen any response specifically to these protests, uh, but I think they're just sort of staying the course at this point. And again, I mean, you know, the U.S. doesn't really care that the Haitian economy is in tatters. All they want out of a Haitian leader is somebody who will uh, kind of stay the U.S. course and will take back uh, any Haitians that the United States uh, rounds up trying to get to the U.S. will will happily accept them back without making any problems. Very brave and kind of us. So we're the, the best. Thing that- <laughs> The thing that's really occupied everyone's minds this week, um, at least in the United States, of course, is the war in Ukraine. Um, so why don't we go through that a little bit step by step? And we'll start with the Ukraine annexation referenda, which Putin um, got signed, passed. I don't know what's the, what's the proper language there. So, yeah, we can start with kind of going in chronological order. Um, I mean, people know last week the big story was the Ukrainian military had advanced through uh, most of Kharkiv Oblast. Uh, I've seen indications that they may have advanced a bit further this week, although uh, those are unconfirmed and they come from the governor of the uh, Ukraine's Luhansk Oblast, Serhii Haidai, who I have to say is, uh, has been fairly unreliable at making these claims about Ukrainian military advances. So uh, I don't know how much to trust that. What is definitely happening uh, is that the Russian-appointed administrators of four provinces or four oblasts in Ukraine, uh, Donetsk, Kherson, Luhansk, and Zaporizhia, have all announced plans to hold public votes uh, on Russian annexation. I think as early as uh, Friday, uh, which is when this episode will come out, uh, and kind of over through the weekend and into Monday. Now, Russia doesn't control the entirety of those provinces. Parts of Part of Kherson is still in Ukrainian hands. Part of Zaporizhia also still in Ukrainian hands. So this would just apply, I guess, to those parts that are under Russian control. Uh, but they're going to hold these referendum on annexation to Russia. The Russian government has been supportive, presumably. Uh, presumably they orchestrated these things. So it's not like, you know, this came as any big surprise to them. Uh, the referendums almost certainly will be uh, in favor of annexation if for no other reason. I don't say that to, to necessarily say they'll be rigged, although that's, possi- that's a possibility, but certainly after uh, months of war and after the presumably anti-Russian populations of these regions have fled, anybody who's left is most likely going to be in favor of annexation to Russia. So I would say they're likely to to pass or to, you know, to, to accept annexation or to vote in favor of it. Uh, that's not going to be accepted, obviously, by the international community. But then the 2014 referendum in Crimea, which was technically on independence, annexation came later. But that wasn't accepted as legitimate by the international community either. And yet Crimea is functionally part of Russia today. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's where things stand on that. None of the votes have taken place yet, but I don't think it's uh, any mystery how they're going to turn out. So why don't we turn to what really everyone has been focusing on, which is Russia's mobilization. Um, and, and let's talk about what actually just literally appears to have happened, and then we could discuss the potential implications. Sure. So uh, Vladimir Putin was scheduled to make uh, a televised address on Tuesday evening that it was unclear what he was going to talk about. There was some uh, suggestion he would uh, just make a speech kind of uh, reinforcing his support for these referendums. Uh, He wound up 
not making the speech on Tuesday evening. And my understanding is there was a, a fairly awkward period of time on Russian TV where everybody was sort of waiting for him to appear, and he never did. Finally, he made the speech on Wednesday. Uh, what he announced, he did talk a little bit about the referendums, but what he really announced was a couple of things. Uh, the, the main, I think, development was his announcement of a partial military mobilization that his defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, later clarified or later specified would involve uh, 300, around 300,000 reservists. Now, these, were all, these are all people who have served in the Russian military before, so veterans. Uh, they would be called up, uh, given some degree of training, uh, and deployed to Ukraine to reinforce the Russian front line there. We should say Putin has been under increasing pressure, I think, since the Ukrainian advance in Kharkiv from a lot of kind of allies, his, a lot of his allies in the Russian commentariat or the Russian, uh, you know, pundit world uh, who have been fairly hawkish about this war, uh, they've started calling for full mobilization in the wake of these Ukrainian successes. They've been criticizing and starting to criticize just, you know, for the first time, really, Putin's conduct of the war. So he's, he's under some political pressure for uh, a larger mobilization, even than the one that he, he announced. Uh, that said, Putin has been resisting any mobilization because I think his concern, and this is probably correct, and I think we could talk about uh, some of the evidence that's already bearing it out, that a mobilization uh, would wake the Russian public up to what's going on, sort of wake it up to the, the fact that there's a war, that it's not maybe going so great, uh, and that could, give, that could lead to a whole different kind of political pressure that he's trying to resist. Apart from that, apart from the mobilization, the other main takeaway uh, that sort of dominated Western coverage of the speech was Putin's oblique threat to use nuclear weapons, uh, essentially, if he, if he feels that Russia's territorial integrity should be threatened. The problem with that in this particular situation, not aside from just the general problem with nuclear weapons, uh, is that Putin now regards Russia's territorial integrity as including all these regions of Ukraine that I just mentioned that are holding these referendums and Crimea as well, which are internationally still recognized as part of Ukraine. So does that mean that if Ukrainian soldiers manage to, you know, kind of continue their advance and, and enter Luhansk province or if they make advances in Kherson, that Russia's gonna gonna use a tactical nuke on the battlefield? Who knows? I mean, that's that's. Uh, uh, I would say no. I would say this is this is just bluster. But I have uh, not a great track record here when it comes to kind of assuming that Vladimir Putin is still operating in the realm of rationality, as far as I would consider it. Uh, so don't go by me. So that was the other thing, and obviously that got a lot of attention uh, from the West just because of the specter of of a nuclear conflict. But um, I think the main thing to to consider here is the the mobilization. So there's a lot of questions, Derek. Can we talk a little bit about the nuclear issue? Because um, there's been a lot of discussion online, uh, in particular to me, and maybe I'm incorrect, but just from studying the history of war, it does seem that regardless of presence, Russian nuclear posture or nuclear doctrine, these things could be realigned in a way where they could use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. First of all, am I just wrong? Is it current, presently basically impossible for Russia to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine? No, I don't, think, I don't think it's impossible at all, especially if we're talking about kind of tactical nuclear weapons as opposed to the big strategic ones. I don't think he's going to haul Could the ICBMs Could you maybe just describe out. the difference between tactical and strategic nukes? It's, it, it's, related, it's basically related to size of explosion, right? 
Yes. I mean, it's size of explosion and size of warhead. So a tactical nuclear weapon uh, is smaller. Um, and that I mean that both in terms of yield and in terms of the actual size of the warhead. So it can be fitted on an artillery round or a rocket or something that uh, can be used on a battlefield as opposed to strategic nuclear weapons, which generally have to be mounted on a- at least cruise missiles, if not you know, ballistic missiles, uh, and are... Uh, you know, produce designed much larger to end wars and are, that's what yeah, strategic yeah. means the designed yeah. to end a war ideally. Exactly. Okay. So when people are, are claiming that don't worry, you know, Russian posture doesn't suggest that they can use nukes in Ukraine. What do you think about that? What, what's going on there? I mean, I, I, uh, I don't know what Russian posture means in that context. They could certainly, decide to use a tactical nuke on the battlefield or even in a, in a city, um, you know, or someplace behind the, the Ukrainian lines. Um, you know, I, I don't think they're likely to even after this speech. Um, but I, I don't, I don't see the, the sort of structural block that's preventing them from doing it. I think it's, it's in the realm of possibility, if not plausibility. Yeah. It seemed, it seemed like a rather, strange thing to say so why don't we talk about that then why don't you currently think it's plausible uh well because i think it's uh, utility the utility of these things is questionable um you know if you found a particularly ripe military target i guess you could do a substantial amount of damage with a single uh shell or you know a couple of shells uh, targeting the Ukrainian military, but the uh, the only other use of this is on a on a populated area, on a city or something like that, and I, I think that would uh, escalate this conflict. I mean, it's already you know in Russia's mind, it's already a war against the West, um, and you can argue you know can argue about whether or not that's uh, actually the case. There is a, an argument to be made that it is, uh, but this would take it to another level. I think the the flow of weapons the Western willingness to get involved even directly in the conflict, maybe not sending, you know, putting troops in Ukraine, but, you know, getting, getting involved in other ways, shooting down Russian aircraft or something like that would, would skyrocket. Uh, I just don't think it's, uh, there's a, there's a tactical case for their use. Um, and and again, I'm still assuming that Putin is operating in the realm of, of, rationality at least on the the margins of it as far as i would consider rational and and maybe he's not or maybe his definition of rationality is different than mine uh but i just don't see a a a use case for for them in this conflict or or really i mean you know in, in just about any conflict but here especially yeah, I tend to agree. The question is though, does does Putin decide this is an right. existential war for right. Russia's future and he's already and I, I gone just don't, all I mean, in any anybody whose whose mind is operating uh, rationally, who is the president of Russia, would have to conclude that no, it is not an existential threat to Russia if Ukrainian if the Ukrainian army recaptures Kherson. Uh, that's that's just right. not you know that's just not an existential threat to Russia. But again, uh, you just don't know where his his mind is at at this point. How have Russians been responding to the mobilization? Uh, so this is interesting because um, there's been a a couple of indications that they're not particularly happy about it. Uh, there was a rush apparently to buy one way airline tickets out of Russia after Putin's speech. Uh, I don't think that's a coincidence. Uh, 
there were protests in Russia, really sizable. I mean, not huge, but sizable enough to get some coverage for, I think, the first time since the, the first few weeks of the war um, that took place after the speech. They were broken up by police and, and um there are claims being made that that uh, all the the people who were picked up arrested some I think thirteen or fourteen hundred people uh, were given draft papers, uh, which is interesting. I don't know if that's actually true. There are other anecdotal reports today uh, that I'm less familiar with that uh, there are lines of people. Uh, fleeing the country to land borders with, for example, Georgia is the one that I saw. So I don't think I don't think it's gone over very well. I think this is the reaction that uh, Putin feared uh, triggering that this would um, not be taken well by the Russian public. So uh, that is uh, that's where things stand. And and I think the question of the utility of this call up is. Uh, you know whether it's worth taking this political risk is is one that um, you know could be could be discussed. I'm not sure it's uh, very cut and dried. I mean, obviously, 300,000 extra soldiers um, are going to come in handy if you're running short of manpower. But at the same time, uh, you're talking about tens of thousands of soldiers who, yes, they're veterans, but they they aren't active duty military. They haven't been training. Uh, with the current Russian military, they didn't train on this operation in particular, and you're just going to give them what, like, a couple of weeks of basic training and throw them into the the conflict. I'm not sure uh, how useful that's going to be, and I'm I'm really not sure how uh, that's going to go over logistically with a Russian military that seems to be struggling in that regard. Anyway, this just uh, adds uh, substantially more complexity to their uh, mission. I should also say that along with the mobilization Putin announced, they're also the Russians are also extending the deployment of active duty soldiers who are already in Ukraine, uh, at least until the end of this mobilization period, which uh, is probably not going to be great uh, if morale, as as you know, Western commentators have speculated, if morale in the Russian ranks is not good, extending their deployment is probably not going to do very much for them. So Putin's between a bit of a rock and a hard place, between Scylla and Charybdis, if you will. He's kind of staked the nation's prestige, and also he might very well believe Ukraine is, is crucial to, to Russia's history on this war, and his mobilization does not appear to be especially popular, even though it's tough to really know what's going on within Russia. So, so what do you think, maybe we could just talk for a second about Putin's position right now, and what are your thoughts on it? Um, I mean, I think he's, yeah, I think he's a little bit uh, under the gun. I think particularly the, the revelation that, uh, some of the friendliest, most pro-war voices in Russian media have been questioning his conduct of the war for the first time. Uh, that's the kind of thing that, you know, if you're in that position, um, I think could really impact your, uh, state of mind. And I'm not suggesting that, um, you know, there's going to be any kind of move against Putin uh, within the security establishment or anything like that. Um, but you you have to, you know, uh, take that. I mean, I, I would think that criticism would have to affect him, uh, you know, especially after such a dramatic. And he's tried to downplay it, of course, his public uh, remarks saying that, uh, you know, ha ha ha, this isn't that big a deal. Uh, strategically, it may not even be that big a deal. I don't think the Russians had placed much stock in Kharkiv anymore they were clearly focusing on other parts of the country. So it's, uh, you know, it's entirely possible that this doesn't affect their position that much. Uh, you know, uh, again, it remains to be seen how that plays out. 
but still to 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 be taking this criticism and then on the other side you know to 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 see um what may be again as you say we don't really know exactly what's happening inside of russia but what may be a fairly significant response to even this relatively small mobilization i mean people are calling for like full blown drafts and full blown mobilizations which would mean millions of people potentially being kind of recruited into the war effort forcibly you know to see this kind of pretty oppositional response to even a partial mobilization has to uh, i think weigh on him as well i i i would Again, I'm not uh, going to try to put myself in his uh, mindset, but it, it it can't be great right now. I wouldn't think. Uh, even even China, and I, I you know should add this: the the international response to to this speech was you know uh, obviously uniformly uh, negative, focusing a lot on the nuclear threat, uh, and even the Chinese government, which has been sort of the one major uh, world player that's been a- at least tolerating the war, if not supporting it to the hilt. Uh, even the Chinese government after the speech, uh, the foreign ministry issued a statement calling for a ceasefire. They, uh, let me quote them, actually, quote, a ceasefire through dialogue and consultation, end quote, uh, which is probably as close as they're going to get to saying, you need to pump the brakes, buddy. This is uh, going off the rails here. So I, I think even in that quarter, he's not um, y- you know, finding uh, the support that he was finding even a few weeks ago. So what should the U.S. do in this situation? It's been interesting just sitting in this country. Last week, everyone was excited about the counteroffensive. This week, everyone is anxious about the mobilization. Uh, You know, it's it's, it's a roller coaster of ups and downs with people staking out various uh, almost moral positions that express particular views about the world, but what what has the U.S. done, and, and what should the U.S. do? Is Are we still sticking to our, our um, basically our position that we shouldn't fund the war because the fog of war is unknowable, and it could lead to escalatory ladders, or have things changed? What do you think? Um, I'm, what do I think the U.S. should do? I think that the U.S. should should be focusing on the Ukrainian economy. Adam Tews did a, a really good uh, outline in his newsletter, la- I want to say last week, uh, about the effect that the war has had on the Ukrainian economy. Uh, it's been just utterly devastating, and and obviously there's been I mean there's been some support from the U.S. from uh, other, you know, Western sources, some financial support for the Ukrainian government, but it hasn't been nearly uh, what they need to keep things going. And, uh, you know, it's not as as sexy as, you know, sending, you know, long range missile systems or drones or anything like that. And it doesn't certainly get you any, you know, brownie points with defense contractors. Uh, but I think more critical at this point, uh, especially right now when the Ukrainians have you know, just had a major success. Things are kind of, I think, maybe slowing down a bit to retrench and for everybody to consolidate where they're at. Uh, these referendums are going to happen no matter what. And, uh, you know, you, you can reject them, but there's not much you can do to stop them at this point. Uh, I would I would be focusing on making sure that people can can eat, uh, you know, and that's that financial support includes not just kind of supporting the, the people of Ukraine, it includes supporting food exports out of Ukraine, which are, are critical to, you know, the Horn of Africa, lo- a lot of places around the world that are dependent on grain exports in particular coming out of the Black Sea that, that are struggling right now. Uh, these are the things that I would be focusing on 
personally if I were the Biden administration. What I would not do uh, is overreact to anything that Putin said this week. I mean, the, the call-up is, is going to happen. You have to wait and see how that actually impacts the war. I think the nuclear talk is, is mostly bluster. Uh, so I would not jump to any conclusions and, and um, you know, start supplying the Ukrainians with like F-35s or cruise missiles or something like that, uh, which I don't think is in the cards, I should say. Uh, so, so yeah, I would, I would be focusing on the non-military aspects of this, this situation right now. So now that we're talking about America, why don't we end on um, one of the great problems of our time, and that is Havana Syndrome. So, Derek, what's uh, been the update with Havana Syndrome? So this was uh, last week. Uh, Michael Isakoff from from uh, Yahoo News uh, did uh, conducted an interview with the Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, Brian Nichols, uh, who just kind of dropped the bombshell that uh, there the U.S. government sees no evidence that any external actors caused Havana Syndrome uh, or caused those health incidents. I should say this is very there is a syndrome. Uh, yeah, just stunning, surprising. stunning to me. I, I always figured the we would find the ray gun eventually. Uh, this is, I mean, the reason this is somewhat of a bombshell is because we're the, the government is preparing. Uh, has already started kind of preparing to compensate people who claim to have been uh, suffered health effects or suffered injuries uh, under the rubric uh, of Havana syndrome. Congress passed the Havana Act last year. You know, so payouts are, are starting to go. Or, uh, I don't think they're starting to go out yet, but they're being prepared by uh, the State Department, the Central Intelligence Agency, et cetera. Uh, and to just have you know, after the the administration has insisted all along that this is a real thing and somebody's attacking us, and uh, to just have you know very fairly high ranking official in the State Department casually say, you know, we don't really actually, it turns out we don't really see any evidence uh, that this is a real thing, is is bonkers to me. I mean, it's just sort of how long have they been thinking this? Because they haven't has been anything in their public remarks that have indicated this belief. But apparently, it's this almost is where like their they never. Are really believe that there was a ray gun being shot at local <laughs> officials to make them sick, Derek. And it's very but how could that be? How could that imagine. be when it's such a plausible scenario? It's the ray gun. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty pretty wild to see that. So I just want to uh, make people aware of that. I think this was a there was a piece that Isakoff did and then uh, there's a, the interview is a part of uh, a new podcast series that they're doing called Conspiracy Land: The Strange Story of Havana Syndrome. I haven't listened to it, so I can't recommend it. But it's it's there uh, if people want to want to listen. It's to there, it people really want like. to investigate Im- the, the immerse themselves in, in, in Havana syndrome. syndrome. You might you might give yourself some of the symptoms of Havana Syndrome by digging into <laughs> this too too hard, but uh, you give it a shot. Well, Derek, on that note, thank you so much, everyone, uh, and we'll see you soon. Talk to you later. Bye. Yeah.